morning again, Redeemer. It's good to be here with you all. Happy New Year again. It's a new year, 2019. Uh, so I hope uh, on this first day of a new year, this first Sunday of a new year, I'm hoping that this message will be an encouragement to you uh, from God's Word. If you would turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. By the way, uh, this weekend I, I was fighting the cold. I tried to drown it out with uh, some water and zinc pills, so I think I'm on the, the last end of it. But if you hear me cough or sneeze, you know, please excuse me. Um, but as, as we approach this new year, oftentimes we have these new resolutions and these new hopes for a new year. And we look back over the previous year and we look at all of the uh, defeats and failures and shameful moments. And we are kind of even maybe even feeling weird being in church because we haven't went to church in all of 2018. And uh, we just have this weird feeling that uh, hopefully 2019 will go better, but we're not really sure. And so I, I just want to be a part of an encouragement to you today that 2018 and all of its uh, down moments do not define us, but Jesus defines us. Amen. Uh, so if you flip with me to Matthew chapter 27, uh, and it tells us about Jesus' trial during his last hours before his death. The last hours before his death. And I want to reflect on the reality of a notorious savior for a notorious people, a notorious savior for a notorious people. If you all would meet me in verse 11, we'll begin the reading of God's word. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious, somebody say notorious. They had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus or violently whipped Jesus, 
delivered him to be crucified. Would you all pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, you're so good that you have not left it up to guesswork to determine who you are and what you would have us do. Lord, you made it plain in your scriptures, in your writings. So, Lord, I ask that we would turn our attention to your word. Lord, I ask that we would eagerly expect the word to work in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, will we lay this word up in our hearts and practice it in our lives? Lord, this moment, the preaching moment, cannot happen without you, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask that you be at work in the preaching of your word. Lord, we ask that you would uh, make it an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners. Lord, I also ask for preaching power. Lord, I literally cannot do this without you. It's not just something that preachers say, but we really mean it. So, Lord, we ask that you would uh, work in this moment. Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? Lord, would you accompany the explanation of your word with power, Lord, and clarity? Lord, we love you. Amen. So, Romeo and Juliet is one of the most popular romantic tragedies in the English-speaking world. So, uh, many of us are familiar with this story if you were forced to read it in high school English class. Uh, but as a review, uh, I'll, I'll give you a summary. So, the Montague and Capulet families were opposing families, and the play opens with them in a brawl. And the prince of the town comes out and says, stop, you guys will have peace. And anyone who breaks this peace going forward, it will be punished by death. And so you have Romeo, who's a Montague, and he has a crush on this Capulet girl named Rosaline. So he sneaks into a Capulet party, even though he's a Montague, hoping to meet Rosaline. But at the party, he messes around and sees Juliet and falls in love with Juliet. And then he's, he's sad later on because he's like, oh, man, I hope Juliet loves me, too. He finds out that Juliet loves him, too. And he's like, yes, great. So like in every good play, they arrange a secret marriage. Uh, and is officiated by a guy named Friar Lawrence. And so they're, they're married. But you remember, they're a part of two opposing families. Now, eventually, Juliet's parents have her arranged to get married to a guy named Paris. This is a, a, a big deal because Juliet's secretly married, and so if she's already secretly married, she doesn't want to be married to Paris. So her Friar Lawrence come up with a plan that she's going to take kind of like a potion that puts her in a coma-like state for about two days, and so they're going to think Juliet's dead. And so if she's dead, she can't be married to Paris. And then eventually she's going to uh, meet up with Romeo after she wakes up and they're going to be married happily ever after. But guess what happens? Romeo doesn't get the memo. He doesn't get the text message, right? And Friar Lawrence had bad service. So Romeo finds out through Facebook that Juliet has passed away. And he's like, oh, no, he's like, I can't live without Juliet. And so what he does, he goes and buys poison, and he's on his way walking to her crypt, basically like her, her um, grave site, and he's going to drink the poison and die with Juliet. So he goes there, he finds Paris, the would-be husband, he's there grieving, they fight to the death, and then Romeo drinks the poison, and he dies. But then guess what happens? Juliet wakes up, she's like, no, Romeo, I can't live without you. And so she takes his dagger, and then she takes her own life. Now, uh, you're like, okay, what does this have to do with our passage? It's like, yeah, I just wanted to come and preach to you, Romeo and Juliet. But nah, really what, what ha this has to do with our passage is something called tragic irony is at work in this play. Now, 
tragic irony is when the audience knows something that the characters do not. Is when the audience knows something that the characters do not. And as meant, playwrights and storytellers use this as a way of drawing in the hearers or readers. And it, it creates an emotional response to the, to the story. So when Romeo is walking towards the crypt and he got the poison in his hand, what do, like, what do we want to scream out to him? We're like, don't do it. Juliet's alive. Don't do it. Right? And then when, uh, but Romeo doesn't know that. And so when Juliet wakes up, and then she, uh, you know, is like, oh, Romeo, what do we want to do? We're like, oh, my gosh, Juliet, no. You know, because we know that she's going to do this out of a misunderstanding. This is tragic irony. Uh, for, for those of us who might not be familiar with Romeo and Juliet, kind of a more modern example is the movie Get Out. Who, have y'all seen the movie Get Out? So, so, you know, kind of the whole premise, is, it, it sounds kind of weird, but it's, it's a good movie. It's basically this, this family has a conspiracy to, um, so that the daughter goes and, and dates black men, and then she lures them to come visit the parents. And then while he's there, uh, they kind of basically plan to put him to sleep and put a white soul in a black body. They plan to possess his body, basically. I know it sounds weird. Um, <laughs> so in the middle of the movie, you, 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 you have the black guy and, and the white woman, and they're sitting by the lake, and they're like, oh, and you know, he's been kind of, you know, acting funny the whole time because he sees weird stuff going on. And then she's kind of like, oh, baby, what's wrong? And he's like, oh, baby, you know, I love you. And she's like, I love you too. And they have this heart to heart moment. But what he doesn't know, but what we know is that they just kind of had like a slave auction to auction off his body to be possessed, right? And so we're screaming, I'm screaming, we're like, no, dude, like, she's not, she doesn't love you. You're about to be possessed. And you're like, get out, right? So the title of the movie comes from the tragic irony in the movie. He needs to get out. Um, and so this is an example of tragic irony. But the thing is, I think Matthew is doing this as he tells this story. There is tragic irony all up in this passage. You see, the audience knows something that the people in the narrative do not know. As Jesus is on trial and as all these things are happening, the people in the audience don't know, but we know, like, Jesus is the most righteous man who has ever lived. Don't do it, right? So as we're diving into this passage, I want us to look at three tragic ironies. The notorious Savior, the notorious people, and the notorious exchange. The notorious Savior, the notorious people, and the notorious exchange. Look at verse 11. Somebody say, a notorious savior. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who was called Christ? For they knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, notorious Savior, what does notorious mean? Notorious is someone, or you call someone notorious if they are well-known or famous for a bad quality or a deed. So basically someone who is famous for a bad thing, 
during Jesus' time, they considered him as notorious. Why was he notorious? Mainly the religious elite considered him as notorious. And he was notorious because his teachings shook their teachings. It shook their authority. Also, he did things that went against the traditions of the religious elite, like healing people on the Sabbath. He rebuked the religious elite's hypocrisy and condemned their empty religion. Also, they were scared Jesus would cause the Romans to kind of look badly upon what was going on. They're afraid he was going to shake their access to Roman power and kind of blessing. He was more gifted in every area, and he was more popular than they were in every way. So here in the text, we find Jesus on trial by a Roman governor. But we were supposed to ask, like, how did he get here? He got there because this group of religious elite who hated Jesus, they were trying to figure out a way to put him to death. So they said, all right, let's get him tried in, in, in the Jewish courts. The Jewish courts were called the Sanhedrin. So they got a mob together, carried Jesus to be tried in Jewish courts. And they basically got a charge of blasphemy to stick. Blasphemy was punishable by death because Jesus claimed that he was the son of God. So but at that time... The Jews were under Roman dominion, so they didn't have the authority to put anybody to death. Are y'all tracking with me? So in order for the Jews to put Jesus to death, they had to get him condemned with capital punishment in Roman courts. So now they took him before Pilate, and they were trying to get him uh, stuck with a false charge of sedition or treason. That They were like, hey, this guy says he's the king of the Jews. Isn't Caesar the only one who can claim that? So now we see Jesus here on trial before Pilate. And we see that Pilate is kind of questioning Jesus. He's having a conversation with him. He says, hey, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus kind of puts the ball back in Pilate's court. He's like, hey, you know, what do you think? Um, and then, but see, something amazing happens here. You see, I imagine Pilate has had many people come through his court system. He's probably heard a lot of stories, seen a lot of criminals, seen a lot of bad dudes. But I imagine that this was the first time where a guy had been given a chance to defend himself, but didn't defend himself. You see, Pilate was like, hey, do you see all the things these guys are saying against you? They're trying to get you to uh, be put to death. All of these bad things they're saying, and Jesus is sitting there silent. Like, I don't know about y'all, but if I was innocent and I was, you know, getting all these charges stuck on me, I'd be like, hey, I didn't do it. I'm actually the most righteous man who ever lived. Y'all don't kill me. I want to go about my business. Y'all just let me live, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He was silent. And so the text says that Pilate was greatly amazed. Like modern day translation, he was blown away like he was dumbfounded. Because I imagine, I, like I'm willing to bet that this is the first person he's seen that this has happened with. So Pilate already knows, man, there, there, there's something interesting about this guy. This is not just uh, what meets the eye. And then on top of that, the text tells us his wife came to him and was like, Hey, babe, I had a dream about him today. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. So already Pilate's like, I think this guy might be righteous. I don't know why he's here. And then his wife comes. I don't know about y'all, but my wife had a dream about somebody like, and she comes to my job and tells me, don't do it. Like, I'm listening to her, right? Uh, so this happens to Pilate. And so he uh, is, is, is getting nervous here. But what this text is trying to show us is there's something strange going on here. That this guy is on trial, but all things point to him being righteous. You see, the tragic irony is the Jews think he's a notorious person, yet he's the only perfectly righteous man who ever lived. See, the audience knows this, we know this, but they didn't. 
We're supposed to scream as we're reading this story. We're supposed to be screaming, wake up. He's not notorious. He's righteous. He's, in fact, the only righteous person who's ever lived. As we're reading, like, this actually happened. This is the most unjust thing that has ever happened in history. The most righteous man getting condemned on trumped-up charges. We're supposed to let this sink deep. This is supposed to, as Matthew is telling us this story, he's supposed to be drawing us in. He wants us to have a reaction here. He wants us to feel a little nervous. He wants us to feel a little uncomfortable with the injustice that's happening here. That God is on trial. But family, you know, as I read this, the temptation is to be like, oh, you know what? If I was there, I would have recognized Jesus was righteous, you know. But can't we see ourselves a little bit in this? I don't know if y'all are like me at all, but I know sometimes in my heart of hearts that sometimes I put God on trial. Sometimes I wonder, you know, God, are you really worth it? Are you really worthy of my worship? Let me sit on my judgment seat and let me judge you, God. And sometimes in our lives, and especially as we look over this past year in 2018, that in many ways we've questioned what God is up to in our lives, that we've done this with a lack of trust in him. In many ways that things have happened in our lives and we're wondering if this whole Jesus thing is really worth it, that he seems unfair and unjust and antiquated, outdated, old school, that he's just a thing of the past, this imaginary Jesus, and that if we're really going to get on with life, we really need to get on without Jesus. That we judge Jesus as one who makes us uncomfortable and one who we really just want out of our lives. Can we in some ways think this, feel this, operate out of this? So as we look at these people here, we need to see a little bit of ourselves. But reality is, family, that God is perfectly good and he's perfectly righteous And no matter how we've related to him in 2018 and 2019, I want to encourage you with the fact that he is worthy of your worship, that he is good and just and holy and righteous, and that you can trust him even if you might not know what he's up to, even if you might not know what is going on, and even if you might not know what the future year holds, that you can trust him. But not only do we have a notorious savior, but also we have a notorious people. Somebody say a notorious people. Look at verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So imagine what's going on here. I think Pilate is really trying to save Jesus. So Pilate, you know, he's got the, he's got the message. He's got the uh, message from his wife. He's, you know, seen, he's greatly amazed. And he sees that the Jews are just envious of Jesus. So he's like, all right. But at the same time, Pilate has a job to do, right? Pilate's got to do his job, but he doesn't really want to do his job. So he's trying to find a way out of doing his job. So he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the most... Ratchet, notorious, kind of grimy dude I got in prison right now, Barabbas. And I'm going to put him up next to Jesus. And I'm going to let them choose. Of course, they're going to pick Jesus to be released to them, and they're going to want Barabbas condemned. 
Now you see, Barabbas, the text tells us he was notorious. Like He was actually famous for doing actual bad things. He, the text tells us he was a robber. He uh, was murdering people. He was actually rebelling against the Roman government. They, tr- they made that stick on Jesus, even though Jesus wasn't really doing that. And so here's a guy who was actually like, Pilate's like, yeah, this guy actually deserves to die. So Pilate goes, hey, y'all, I got two people. Do you want Barabbas released to you or Jesus? And they're like, Barabbas! And Pilate's probably like, oh, like I tried, you know? The funny thing is, I really think Pilate is trying to get Jesus off the hook. Uh, but, the, but the Jews want Barabbas released to them. They want Jesus to be killed. And there's so much tragic irony in this section. You see, the Jews and Pilate here are condemning Jesus to death, yet they don't know that they are condemning the judge of the world. How are you going to judge the judge of the world? They are charging Jesus with rebellion against Caesar, yet they don't know they are actually rebelling against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They think that they are doing a service to God in killing Jesus, yet they don't know that they are sending God himself to the cross. See, we we as the readers, we know this is happening. So we're supposed to be screaming out, stop, stop. He's the judge of the world. He's king. He's God. Do not do it. We're supposed to feel the gravity of what's going on here. But see, the thing is, don't we ourselves see a little bit of the Jews and Pilate in our own selves? Could we be like Pilate, who, you know, really knows that this guy is righteous and he really should release this guy, but because of concern for his job and what the people might do, he really sends Jesus to death? Could this happen on our jobs? that we know we should stand up for Jesus and we should do this integritist thing and that we should be good to our employees or that we should be good to the, our coworkers or our bosses, but we really, like, we say, hey, Jesus, man, can you just look over this one time? Or maybe it's in our families and our communities. We know that we should be loving neighbors or loving parents or loving children, but we know that we can't stand up for Jesus in that moment because of what it might cost our reputations, what it might cost our finances, what it might cost our guilty pleasures. Or perhaps we have rebelled against Jesus in our nation. I think we all can feel that at times where, hey, Jesus gets kind of in the way of our American dream. That really if we want the American dream, sometimes we've got to, you know, put Jesus to the side. Or could we see ourselves kind of like the Jews? that we really like Barabbas' company, that Barabbas' company is actually comfortable company to us, that when we think about like, kind of like a gangster type of person, we're like, oh, that would, you know, that would be much more comfortable than the most righteous man who ever lived. Imagine what if Jesus lived like here in 2018, or I'm sorry, it happened, 2019, and he was, you know, it was in our dorm rooms, it was in our homes, and was riding in the car with us as we went to work. Wouldn't we feel a little uncomfortable? Wouldn't we kind of be like, oh, Jesus, you kind of cramping my style a little bit. You're making me feel a little uncomfortable. And, you know, I kind of want Barabbas to sit in the passenger seat with me so, he, you know, I don't have somebody judge me while I'm cussing this person out that cut me off, right? Am I the only person who might feel that Barabbas might be more comfortable company than Jesus sometimes? See, family, every time we sin, we are temporarily exchanging Jesus for Barabbas. 
We must realize our own sin in the ways that we don't appreciate Jesus for who he really is. We must realize in some ways we really wish that he was just halfway in our lives. But the good news is that there's a notorious exchange. We've talked about a notorious Savior and notorious people, and we have a notorious exchange. Somebody say a notorious exchange. Look at verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now you see here, the Jews were starting to get out of control. So Pilate was like, oh man, I just, I guess he felt he had to release Jesus in order to keep his job and do his job. But what's funny is that you, you get the sense that his, his conscience is being bothered. So what he does, he takes water and he cleanses his own hands as a gesture of saying, hey, y'all, this ain't on me. It's on you. And then, like, and, and then in response to that, the Jews say, they basically say, hey, Pilate, don't worry about it. Don't trouble your conscience. Put it on our conscience. His death be on us and on our children. We'll take the responsibility for this. This shows how confident that they were in doing this. They thought they were being righteous in doing this. What's funny is Pilate tried to wash himself of his sins with water, but this water would not acquit him of the evil that he had just done. And the Jews were so confident with that what they were doing was righteous, but no matter what they felt in their heart, they were actually in the wrong. Now, what's the tragic irony here in this passage? See, the tragic irony is that they thought that they were putting Jesus to death and they were getting rid of him for good, right? But what we know, what the audience knows, is that his death really brings life. By putting notorious Jesus to death, they were actually advancing his notorious plan to bring blessings to the whole world. You see, what Pilate didn't know, but what we know, is that as he's washing his hands of Jesus, he didn't know that by sending Jesus to death, the whole world, nations, would actually be washed clean of their sins. You see, when the Jews cried out, his blood be on us and on our children, what they didn't know is that Jesus' blood would actually have to be on them and on their children in order for them to be forgiven of their sins. Jesus' cleansing blood would have to be the grounds for their pardon. A, not a notorious exchange was happening here. They sent Jesus to the cross, and on that cross, Christian, he took your sins on his back. The most righteous person who ever lived died as a guilty man so that you who are guilty might be pardoned. I want you to, to imagine what this must have been like for Barabbas, right? Just, just imagine for a second Barabbas' whole deal. Like, I, I don't know if Barabbas was actually there uh, you know, before Pilate, or I don't know if he was in a jail cell somewhere. But imagine what this must have been like for him. He was just sitting there. He was probably thinking over his whole life and all that he's ever done. He was thinking about why he's in the chains. He's like, yeah, man, Barabbas, he's talking to himself. Barabbas, to be honest, man, 
You deserve everything that's coming to you. You've been robbing, murdering, rebelling against the government. You deserve to die. He's playing over his whole life, wondering if his life has actually been for anything. But then someone comes and tells you, hey, everything you've ever done your whole life, all the crimes you've ever committed, they're gone. And they unlock you from your chains and you are set free. And even though you are famous for being bad, everybody knows you're bad, you walk around as if you were perfectly righteous. And you know that a righteous dude named Jesus went to the cross on your behalf. Family, this is what it's like to be a Christian. See, as we look over our lives, and especially as we look over 2018, we say, man, I, I, I did this and I thought that, and I was this and I was that, and I was in this situation I shouldn't have been in, and I was dating this person that I should have been dating, and I was you know, in, in doing this and behind the scenes, and I have this secret thing that I was caught up with, and I know I shouldn't have done it. And as you're going through all this, you say, man, I don't deserve anything good in 2019. Some of us might actually feel weird being in church this morning because we know we ain't been to church in all of 2018. And we say, you know what, God, I'm here. I realize I need you. But for real, for real, if you don't rock with me in 2019, I get it because I really wasn't there for you in 2018. Our sins are ever before us. But family, my encouragement and good news for you in 2019 is that your Savior went to the cross and died on your behalf so that you might be pardoned. All of those sins in 2018, as far as the east is from the west, so far have your transgressions been removed from you. You aren't only halfway forgiven, you are 100% fully forgiven because of your Savior Jesus. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the Father's steadfast love for those who fear him. Family, your hopes that God would restore you, encourage you, transform you, those promises are still valid for you in 2019. Your Savior, your God, loves you. And he is so happy that you want to follow him and worship him in 2019 and year after year after year after year. You see, the notorious exchange was Jesus took the guilt of your sins but gave you a perfect righteousness. So like Barabbas, your chains are free. Sin no longer has the claim of punishment over you. And sin no longer has mastery and dominion over you. So that by the power of the Spirit, you can walk as if you're perfectly righteous. And you are a full member of God's family, a full member of his kingdom. You belong to God and God accepts you. Family, we have a good Savior, don't we? We have a gracious Savior. And the reason why this exchange is notorious is because we don't really see this kind of grace oftentimes in our society, right? Oftentimes, we'll, we'll hold stuff over people, and, you know, we, we, we forgive people, but we really don't forgive them. You know, we, we, we have that one friend, and we still talk about what they did in college in 1990, and they 40-year-old and have kids and stuff, right? And we still talking about, oh, man, you remember when they did so-and-so, right? Like, grace is scandalous. This grace is nothing like we've ever tasted before. 
This grace is full and is sweet and is powerful and is at work for those who place their trust in Jesus. It is at work for those who have called and cried out to Jesus as their Savior. So family, we have a notorious Savior for us a notorious people and is done by a notorious exchange. And I want us to be encouraged by that going forward in 2019 and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Would you all pray with me? Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, we thank you that you are a wonderful Savior. Lord, as we look back over the past year and past years, we realize that in many ways we put you on the judgment seat. And we've sat down on our throne and, and we've looked at you and have wondered if you're really worthy of our time and attention and worship. Oftentimes, Jesus, we think we're doing you a favor by following you. But oh, Jesus, how little do we know that it is only you who, who is extending all the favors. Jesus, you love us, and this is why you do it. God, I pray that you would make us more holy, that we would love you and love righteousness, that we would see your righteousness as a wonderful and beautiful thing, a thing worthy to be imitated in 2019. Jesus, I ask that we would enjoy and love your company even more. We would invite you into those places that we were scared to invite you into previously, that, you, that we would bring you into those secret places that we don't want anyone to know about and to acknowledge you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior there and in those, save, in, in those moments. Jesus, we thank you for a notorious exchange. You have taken our guilt and given us your righteousness so that all of our sins are pardoned and we are accepted as righteous before the Father. Jesus, we love you. Amen.